0: the kiddos now if you would like to be dismissed for the scripture time grades three and below Matt? as the kids head down i hope you have your bibles with you and that you'll turn in them to matthew chapter 12 matthew chapter 12 can be found on page number 816 in the Bibles, in the backs of the chairs, although our passage is one page over, w- page 817 is Matthew 12, verse 15. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but there's a sort of modern fad right now in evangelical Christianity, American evangelical Christianity in particular, that. Is pretty obsessed with what I would call tough guy Christianity. It's pretty suspicious to me for some reasons that I think are found even in our passage for today. Has this idea that the solution to American Christianity's problem, of which there are many for sure, is a sort of manliness centered conquering of the world for Jesus. It often harps on being physically imposing and financially successful and intellectually astute. And in fact, it's really not that, those ideas are not really that unique to that particular current fad. Modern American evangelical Christianity is and has already been enamored with YouTube videos and Instagram influencers and this desire to, quote-unquote, put the right politicians in place, as Christians often say it, the ordinary, weak, rudimentary rhythms of the ordinary means of grace that Christians have called them for many years are not regarded as highly as they should be. Ordinary means of grace, such as simply reading your Bible habitually, And hungrily. Such as praying without ceasing every chance you get and with the body, with your church, like we get to do today. Simply gathering for worship every week, hearing the word preached, fellowshipping with one another, being fed by the teaching of God's word, even in small, seemingly stumbling weekly along local churches like ours. And so this fad... And, of course, I'm saying the ideas in that modern Christian manliness fad that are not unique to it go against, I believe, what the strategy is for the literal king of the universe who will one day judge everyone with precision and without prejudice. The strategy of the king of the universe was a strategy of meekness, of smallness, of humility, of using the weak things in this world and people in this world to accomplish his plans. Getting things done, you might say, through ordinary, humble, and willing servants like you and me. And I believe that's what's at the heart of this text. Matthew twelve fifteen through 21 is at the end of a section in Matthew 12 that starts at verse 1 and I believe ends at verse 21 where we see Jesus coming head to head with legalism, the legalism of the Pharisees, their distorted understanding of the relationship between God's law and God's grace and how that affected the way they thought, the way they spoke, the way they lived, and the fact that they made up laws that went farther than God's law actually did. Jesus came head to head with it in the first section, Matthew 12, 1 through 8, where he proclaims to them, No, the Son of Man, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, not you. He goes on to say it in an, in an episode that follows in verses uh, 9 through 14, where he proclaims it is good to do good on the Sabbath. It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. In fact, you withholding good on the Sabbath is not He's confronted these Pharisees or in some ways, I suppose you could say the Pharisees have confronted him in this context and in the subject regarding legalism. And now, after this confrontation with the Pharisees in verses 1 through 14 is concluded, Matthew tells us first what Jesus did next in verses 15 through 16 of Matthew 12. What did he do? He, first of all, He moved on. He moved on. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from there, verse 15 says. He moved on. He ministered in meekness. He withdrew from there, the text says. Withdrew from where? Well, withdrew from the synagogue in that region where this little confrontation had taken place, possibly the whole region itself. But it says aware of this, and so we have to look at what came before it, and it's that very last verse in in the section previous in verse fourteen, where it says the Pharisees were conspiring how to destroy him. Jesus was aware of this, and so he withdrew from there. And I have to say, I find this interesting. I don't want to suggest some kind of application here that takes us to a place that the text isn't leading us. I don't think the point of this passage is these words in verse fifteen. And so it shouldn't be a big consideration, but I wonder, is there something to learn here about how sometimes the Lord himself doesn't always just try to force things with people who doesn't want to receive his ministry? Is there something to learn here about how, in this case, Jesus removed himself from harm's way because there was more ministry to be done somewhere else? I think so, but it's not to be taken as a big point, so I'm just going to leave it at that. The main thing here is simply the fact that Jesus, of course, knew what the Pharisees were plotting. And because there was more work to be done and because the time of his suffering hadn't come yet, he moved on to the next place for the sake of what he did next. He moved on and he ministered. He withdrew from there, it says in verse 15, and many followed him. And he healed them all. Even though he withdrew from that region, even though he left, even though he moved on, there were many who were still following him. After all, he's just put the Pharisees in their place. He's healed a member of that local congregation. And so there's bound to be some people who want to keep following him to see and hear some more. And what is Jesus doing? He's interacting with these ordinary and broken people. These people who were outside the elite religious establishment and he's healing them and then of course i had to use another h he's hushing them too in verse 16 he orders them not to make him known he's taking care of their needs and he is forbidding their spreading his fame he's ministering he's serving he's humbly caring for people he's getting more and more famous and instead of relishing that And looking for more, he's actually seeking to subdue it. And so he moved on and he ministered, third, with meekness. You see, he could easily have sought to carry the momentum of this recent interaction and confrontation with the religious establishment to rally some support to his cause, to build on the growing swell of Followers that the text even tells us he continued to have, and then continue to just draw attention to himself. And in a sense, of course, that would not have been wrong, in the sense that he deserves glory. What he was doing was good. But he didn't do that. He moved on, and he ministered to the needy again in meekness. He did not permit the people to spread. His fame. In other words, what Jesus was doing here is he was sort of holding back on forcing the issue about his Messiahship just yet. In a sense, that had come with some people. The issue of whether or not Christ is Lord and the Messiah has been addressed by Matthew, has been addressed by Jesus. But in terms of a big, huge crowd and the growing swell of popularity and fame, not yet. That would come later. For now, he's just reaching out to nobodies instead of hobnobbing with the somebodies. And again, the text doesn't give us additional details, and I don't want to read into the passage more than what's there, but it's hard not to imagine that Jesus' withdrawal from this region would have come at some kind of an immediate cost to his ministry. I mean, don't you think that there would have been people there that would have loved him to stay and keep up what he was doing? Well, sure. The Pharisees opposed him, but Jesus could handle that. He had put them in their place before. He had confounded them with his teaching before. He had displayed his divine power before. So why move on? Because it wasn't his time yet. And he was okay with that. He was submitting to his father's will. There were still more needy, broken people for Jesus to care for. And because he was meek and humble and gracious and compassionate, he moved on and he ministered to those needy people in meekness. And that's where Matthew goes next in the text this humility, this meekness, this grace of Christ. Jesus withdraws himself from where his ministry was positioned to thrive and also under threat of danger, but he doesn't stop ministering. And he wants the people he's healing to keep it hushed because it wasn't the time for the Jews to betray and arrest and torture and kill him just yet. And so he withdraws himself from that danger. He withdraws himself from the having to force the issue with his messiahship with, with that crew he gets back to healing many people and then we get from Matthew another of his several Old Testament prophecy fulfillment references and we see next first what Jesus did next what Isaiah prophesied you know I like to imagine Matthew after Jesus had risen and ascended compiling the writings that comprised his gospel. I wonder how exactly he did it, how long it took him, whether how much he was writing along the way as he followed Jesus and then consolidating those things into one larger volume later or how much of it he actually sat down and wrote down in one sitting in a shorter period of time as a sort of big project. Either way, as Matthew wrote what he saw, he often noted the things That Jesus did and said and lived reminded him of the prophecies of Isaiah. see that multiple times throughout Matthew's gospel. You see it in chapter 1, verse 23. You see it in chapter 3, verse 3. You see it in chapter 4, verse 14. You see it in chapter 8, verse 18. And then, of course, today's text, which is actually the longest quote of Isaiah in Matthew's gospel. And then you see it again in chapter 13 and chapter 15. Matthew likes to do this. Jesus reminds him of Isaiah's prophecy. And Matthew saw this episode of Jesus' life and ministry as being connected to these words from Isaiah. Look at verses 18 through 21 again. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. It's a reference to Isaiah chapter 42. Would you turn back in your Bibles to Isaiah 42? It would be good for us to see this with our own eyes. And if you're using one of the Bibles that are in the backs of the chairs, you'll find Isaiah 42 on page 602. 602 is where you'll find Isaiah chapter 42 in the bibles in the chairs what matthew is doing in matthew 12 is connecting the dots for his readers and pointing to the fact that this jesus of nazareth about whom he has been writing and whom he had traveled with and who had done these things was the fulfillment of old testament prophecy regarding the salvation of god's people now there's an important and even dramatic link between verse 1 of Isaiah 42 and what came before it. I'll get to that in just a second. Let's just read Isaiah 42 verses 1 through 4. It says, behold, and see if this sounds familiar to what we just read in Matthew 12, behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Of course, Paul read this for us as our call to worship this morning and continued on to, uh, To go even farther in the passage where the response of God's people is praise and worship, which is why we use that passage to call us to lift our voices and sing. How could you not sing praise to God when you see how awesome He is and His love for His people? So, as I said, there is an important and even dramatic link between what you see as the very first word of verse 1 of Isaiah 42 and all the verses that came before it. We're not doing an exposition of Isaiah right now, so I'm not going to go as deep into that as we possibly could. But that very first word, if you're using an ESV like I am, an English Standard Version, you see the word behold. And in the verses leading up to Isaiah 42, there is multiple, there are multiple instances of that word before it. This Hebrew word translated for us in our ESV, behold, essentially means look at this. Check this out. Look. Behold. And it's used on multiple occasions leading up to Isaiah 42 with the intent of drawing attention to how useless and empty idols are. So, If you were to read in some passages previous, you would see behold this, behold that in a very negative way. Look at how vain and empty idols. Idols are. But then when you get to chapter 42 and verse 1, the same word is used again, but instead it's used to draw attention to the better alternative, the servant of God, as this direct contrast to worthless, empty idols. And so what Isaiah is doing in Isaiah 42, and it's important for us to understand that in order to understand what Matthew is pointing to in Matthew 12, what Isaiah is doing is he's contrasting. The hope that one finds in other gods, whatever it is that the world has to offer that you might devote yourself to. It doesn't have to literally be a false religion, though it could be that. It could be anything in this life that you are devoting yourself to. Isaiah is contrasting the hope that you can find in a false god, in an idol, whatever this world has to offer, even sinful things that people often run to for pleasure, for worth and meaning and for satisfaction. He's contrasting those things with the promised servant of God who would come. And so, the world without this servant of God is hopeless because they're stuck with worthless, empty, and destructive idolatry. But, Isaiah says, here's the contrast in 42.1, behold, behold, the servant of God, he will show you where hope is found. Okay, so if you were to print out a copy of Matthew 12, verses. Uh, 18 through 21 and then Isaiah 42 verses 1 through 4 and just put them next to each other side by side if you're able to flip back and forth and keep track that way in in your copy of the scriptures you would see some differences in exactly how it's been translated from Hebrew to Greek and all that all the stuff in between but you'll see clearly that Isaiah 42 1 through 4 is what Matthew is referencing right so what I'd like to do is look at Matthew's text having Isaiah's text in mind I want to focus on Matthew's text because that's where we are in our exposition of Matthew and our study in the unexpected kingdom. But it is important for us to understand what Isaiah was doing when he originally wrote these words. So whether you want to put your finger in both and flip back and forth and look as we go along, you're certainly welcome to do that. I will be focusing on Matthew's text, starting in verse 18. We've got four verses, Matthew 12, 18, 19, 20, and 21. And so I've got four verses ease for you. Four words that start with the letter E to try to help you remember what this says. First we see in verse 18 that this servant of God who Matthew is saying is Jesus, he is empowered to bring justice. He is empowered by God to bring justice. Matthew says in verse 17, Jesus's ministry was done to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. So what Jesus has been doing here is a fulfillment. He's the guy, Matthew says. And what he's doing, first of all, is he is empowered by God to bring justice. This is really big stuff here. The second half of verse 18 says, he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Now, at first glance, you may wonder why Matthew would see connective tissue between what Jesus had said and done in these confrontations with the Pharisees about legalism and what Isaiah had prophesied about God's servant, whom we now know to be Jesus, bringing justice. Justice is what Isaiah promised. If you have your finger in Isaiah 42, you see it in chapter 42, verse 1D, you might say, the fourth line, he will bring justice to the nations. You see it in the third line of verse 3, he will faithfully bring forth justice. You see it in chapter, uh, excuse me, verse 4, the second line, until he has established justice in the earth. This is a big deal for Isaiah. This is a main part of what he is saying the servant of God would do and what the people of God could therefore hope in. He promises worldwide justice, genuine justice, and permanent justice. He brings justice to the nations. He brings it faithfully, and he establishes it, Isaiah says. It's worldwide, it's to the nations, it's real, it's faithful, and it's permanent. It's established. But what's the connection to Jesus' confrontation with legalism in Matthew 12? Verses 1 through 21 on the whole, or 1 through 14 coming before this passage. Well, take a look again, if you want, at Isaiah 42 and verse 4 and what it says. You see at the end of verse 4, till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Now, in Hebrew poetry, the form in which Isaiah's prophecy is written, we often see what's known as parallelisms. In other words, two lines, two statements that essentially mean the same thing but are stated in different ways or can be used in contrast, saying the exact opposite thing to communicate truth. And that's what we have here in verse 4, a parallelism. The word translated Law, or I'll just say it this way, that the word law here is to be understood as a parallel of sorts to this idea of justice. So perhaps we're starting to see the connection because the whole dispute with the Pharisees regarded the law. The word translated law in, he, in, uh, in Hebrew, in Isaiah 42, essentially means the teaching. So you could essentially say, he, has a sta- he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established Justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for the teaching. In other words, the law that Isaiah was pointing to in this prophecy was essentially the truth. What's right? What's true? And that is used as a parallel to the word justice that Isaiah promises or Isaiah writes that God promises will come through the person and work of his chosen servant. I told you this is some heavy stuff. I'm trying to work through it as quickly as I can. Are you with me? So the justice of God is parallel to the law of God in the sense that what's just is what's true, the truth, the the message of God's word to his people. I think we're beginning to see the connection. The point is this, with our modern American Christian sensibilities, and you could even take Christian out of that, our modern American sensibilities, we think of justice as fairness in society. And that is certainly one of the aspects of what justice means. And it's an important one. But here Isaiah is using the word translated justice with Jewish sensibilities, not American sensibilities. And he is referring to what Pastor Brian taught us quite a while ago in our E412 class where we talked about social justice together, to what is known as the kind of in one in one lump justice and righteousness. The justice of God, the justice that God is promising will come through his chosen servant in this prophecy of Isaiah is this justice and righteousness that is necessarily connected to truth, to God's divine revelation, to God's word. And so there's a real sense to which it's not just, or I should say maybe merely a social fairness That Jesus brings, though, of course, that's certainly a result and it's an exciting one for us to care about and seek to do rightly today and look forward to fully being fulfilled one day. But rather, it is the divine revelation of the truth, the divine revelation of God's law, God's word, what is right. And so that, I think, is where we see this connection to legalism. I think that's why Matthew sees connective tissue here isaiah's prophecy actually fits in this context of matthew's account of jesus's legal disputes with the pharisees when you think it think of it that way because what the chosen servant of god was promised would bring was the pronouncement of what is true and the announcement that the righteous and just judge was listening and answering their concerns about what is right. You with me? He brings the word, the message from God that what they need is being answered by God and that God's answer to them is Jesus. Amen. Thank you. That's the whole point of these law disputes that these Pharisees wanted conformity to their system. And Jesus shows up and says, I transcend your systems. The Pharisees wanted to obtain and maintain rightness before God, acceptance before God through mere ritual obedience And Jesus says, guys, I'm the person that these laws and rituals point to. The Pharisees obsessed about technically rightness. They obsessed about perfection. They obsessed about consistency. And Jesus shows up and arrives as this actual bringer of the most right rightness. The most consistent and perfect message of truth from God that there ever has been and ever will be and so what Matthew is saying through what Isaiah said centuries earlier is that Jesus of Nazareth is the promised chosen servant of God who will proclaim the truth who will bring the news of God and his rightness to everyone who turns to him in faith The one whose message then transcends the legalistic message of the Pharisees, whose message about how to be right with God and stay right with God was skewed. Jesus' very nature and person is that which all of the Old Testament law, all of the sacrificial rituals anticipated and pointed to. And his ministry demonstrated exactly what god wanted from his people sadly that his people had so often and on the whole failed to do and that's what matthew means and that's what isaiah pointed to regarding the justice of god being brought to the nations through jesus but notice also the manner in which god's chosen servant jesus would bring and did bring this justice his emphasis was not Drawing attention to himself. Verse 19 says, He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. I'm sure you, like I, can recall watching either a movie or a TV show where one of the characters in whatever it is that you're watching is the President of the United States or perhaps some other important leader and there's some sort of crisis that they're in, and there's some sort of opportunity or need for leadership, and you'll hear either that character or someone in their staff or their team say something like, we need to get you in front of a camera. You know what I mean? I think of 24. Some of you have probably watched 24 and the need for the president to get in front of the camera and make a statement. also think of the Broadway musical Hamilton when alexander hamilton is being uh, sort of introduced and the the people around him say let's get this guy in front of a crowd that's not what jesus is like that's not jesus's strategy here he's not strategically building a massive following that could lead to a political revolt based on the momentum that he would gain from those who were witnessing his ministry isaiah said Rather, and Matthew points to it, that the Messiah would not cry aloud, lift up his voice, or make his voice heard. And you could translate this word or understand this word for uh, given, given us in the ESV cry aloud as the word startle. The next phrase, lift up his voice, you could think of it as shouting down others. The next word, uh, the next phrase, making his voice heard could also be translated dominate he's not out to startle shout down or dominate he's not out to advertise himself he's in a way unaggressive he's meek he's quiet because he was there on a mission from his father to bring the message of justice of rightness of justice and righteousness of the truth about what is right and what is good and how you can be right with God to the world. He was himself that revelation of God, the divine word of God, as John calls him in his gospel, but he did not go around grabbing fame and influence for himself. And you know, this contrasts directly to what our world values and looks like. If you were to, this afternoon, go home and turn on some of the talking heads on cable news or YouTube or whatever, or look back at the last couple of presidential debates, or scroll your social media accounts and look at the interactions between people about the issues in our society and culture and world today, particularly when it comes to disputes about what is right, you will see the literal exact opposite of Jesus very often. He will not cry aloud or startle. He will not lift up his voice or shout down others. He will not make his voice heard or dominate. Those are exactly what you see in our world. Just take these meanings here and apply them to our own world, our own hearts, our own situation, and think about the fact that that which the Christ would not do is exactly what the world does. And you see, therefore, the contrast between the emptiness of the world and the damage and the hopelessness that it can bring. And the difference between God's true chosen servant. Jesus is so much better. Jesus is so much better, isn't he? He's humble. He's meek. His emphasis is not on himself. It's on the mission from the Father and on the people that he came to seek and save. It's on the message of God's truth and how to be right with him. And isn't it interesting, this very thing is illustrated for us in our very text in the words preceding in verses 15 through 16. He withdraws instead of being eager to jump into this quarrel. Verse 19, he will not quarrel. Verse 15, Jesus, aware of their desire to destroy him, withdrew. He could have put them in their place again like he had done so many times. In fact, he had all power and could have zapped them out of existence. But he moved away he literally just left so as to avoid the confrontation and avoid this growing swell of momentum and instead to display his meekness there's something else here in Isaiah's prophecy and Matthew's words about it regarding Jesus's meekness and that is the third e he will encourage the needy and broken this is a Famous and beloved phrase in the scriptures, both in Matthew 12, 20, and in Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench. What does this mean? Isaiah is employing, and Matthew then pointing to, two pictures of how the Messiah will bring his proclamation announcement pronouncement of the truth and goodness and rightness of God two illustrations one of a reed and one of a wick a reed as you may know is a sort of a stalk of a plant that would have in that time in Isaiah's time in particular been used and useful for various needs for support depending on the size of that stalk that reed and also would have been used for measurement getting sort of an exact number of how long something was or wasn't. But if a reed became damaged or bruised, to use the word in our text here, in other words, kind of softened, losing some of its integrity, well, it was no longer useful. And you would just take it and break it down to a smaller size so it was easy to discard. A wick, is pretty much what you think as well. Uh, a small strip of cloth used for lighting lamps or candles, and if it began to smoke or smolder, that was a clue that it was in danger of going out and being ineffective and therefore useless. And so you just blow it out, get rid of it, get a different one. In both cases, both with a bruised or weak reed and a smoldering or smoking wick common sense says get rid of them they're not useful anymore this one's not going to be what i need let me ask you what may be a emotional and difficult question for us to consider have you ever felt broken have you ever felt damaged have you ever felt weak useless ineffective, pointless? Does it ever seem to you that your gifts aren't that useful? Or that your sinfulness is just too great? Or that your faith isn't strong enough? My friend, I have good news for you. Jesus came for you. Have you ever had this sense that you're just a nobody and that you could never be what you ought to be and that your sinful and unwise choices and decisions have now led you to be hopelessly useless? Guess what? Jesus delights to welcome you into his kingdom and to partner with you in his kingdom work, if you simply trust him. Do you ever feel like your dreams have been shattered? Do you ever feel like your hopes have been broken? Guess what? Jesus is being, has been, and will be gentle with you. Friends, here is the encouragement about Jesus and from Jesus in his word. He does not get rid of Vulnerable, broken, damaged people. He welcomes them into his kingdom. And that is good news for us because that describes all of us. That's who the gospel addresses. It's us. That's what the good news is for, us. Those of us who are broken by sin, broken by the damaged nature of this world. The gospel addresses us a song that we sing here at redeemer it's actually been quite a while i looked back maybe we should put back in a regular rotation and there is a line it's a song called beneath the cross of jesus it's a line that says this hands that should discard me hold wounds which tell me come jesus came To bring justice, to bring rightness, and to make right what was broken so that those of us who are broken and have been broken by our own sins and in this world could find hope where we will find it nowhere else. Those who seem to the world to be unimpressive, weak, and of little consequence... You see, Jesus didn't come for the rich and famous, the strong and skilled, the important and the influential. He came for bruised reeds and smoldering wicks for those who seem useless and good for nothing. Certainly not to say he doesn't care about the rich and famous, the strong and skilled, the important and influential, but I think you get my point. This goes back to the Beatitudes and the blessing that comes to those who are meek and who are poor in spirit and understand their true spiritual standing before God. You look at world history and you see rulers like Alexander the Great and Attila the Han and even more recently Adolf Hitler and they're gathering for themselves military forces for the purpose of world domination and global takeover. But Jesus, he rules with an army of weaklings like you and me. And again, this is why I say that we modern American Christians ought to ascribe more weight and importance to the rudimentary rhythms of grace than we do. Simply reading your Bible hungrily and habitually, simply praying without ceasing every chance you get throughout the day, even in brief prayers and certainly in longer extended times of prayer, gathering with your church for prayer gathering with the church for worship and fellowship and the preaching and teaching of God's word in seemingly bruised and smoldering local churches all over the world. So you know what I say I say away with ideas of the need for impressiveness and influence and takeover. That's not Jesus's methodology. Sure be strategic. That's clearly in the scriptures as well. Pursue the advance of the gospel. Go after it. But don't fall into the kind of thinking that downplays ordinariness and weakness and prioritizes specialness and strength. The strategy of King Jesus was to gather and send the weak and broken to simply be faithful. To be consistent, not necessarily impressive to embrace their weakness as they trust him, to get kingdom work done in weakness and even fumbling around as they do, but humbly and willingly as his servants. Isaiah's prophecy promised that God's servant, who Matthew identifies as Jesus, would enter into our human situation of sickness, brokenness, and sin, and both experience and address them. Isaiah said he would. Matthew tells us he did feel the bruisedness, the brokenness, the weakness, the sorrow, the strain, the pain as he lived out life perfectly and was crucified unjustly. But it was also promised, and Matthew also tells us that he triumphed. He was raised. He is no longer Dead. You see, my friends, what that means is his meekness strategy worked because for 2,000 years, ever since, people like you and me all over the entire globe have been calling him Lord. And that's number four. He is the hope of everyone, including the Gentiles, not just the Jews. It says in verse 21, in his name, the Gentiles will hope. The way Isaiah puts it in Isaiah 42, verse 4, he uses this word coastlands. In other words, these outer regions that they didn't even know what lay beyond them. These islands, perhaps, that were on the far reaches of the world. People who were not in Israel. Everyone will find their hope in Jesus and in his revelation of justice, of rightness his advancement of the truth about who God is and what he does for those who trust in him. So that means everyone, including you and me, every single person all over creation finds their hope in the suffering and risen Christ. Doug O'Donnell, one of my favorite... Commentators, as I've been studying Matthew, says this. This victory is won at Jesus' cross, proclaimed at his resurrection, worked out in his reign from his Father's right hand, and will be consummated at his glorious return and judgment. Amen. That's why this is a message of hope for us. Because even though his earthly ministry was a ministry of meekness and gentleness and lowly and hum and humbleness graciously mercifully caring for people and proclaiming the good news this same messiah is coming back and he is going to execute perfect justice in its fullness bringing an end to all of sin and all of suffering forever that's the lord that's jesus that's this gracious just ruling powerful gentle savior The Lord of the law, the Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord, period. As we've seen in these passages throughout Matthew 12, the Pharisees were disproportionately concerned with being impressive and accomplished and in obtaining and maintaining the favor of God and of holding everyone else to their standard of what they considered good and listen carefully, grasping for a tight hold of control on their environments and the people around them so that everything would be right. But that was the Messiah's job, not theirs. And he came to put things right. He was and is the servant who brings and proclaims and establishes Justice, in other words, what's right, what's true, what's good. So Jesus is the point of this whole passage from Matthew 12, 1 through 21. He's the Lord. He's God in the flesh. He's the divine creator of all things. He's the originator of the law. He's the only one in whom our hope for rightness or justice is found. I don't want to try to make this personal for you and be Transparent and vulnerable with you. Many of you know that the last few years have been quite hard for me personally. I have had to regularly battle for and wrestle with my desire for control and my displeasure when things have not gone, quote unquote, the way things are supposed to be. I would literally say this to myself. To my wife, to my Lord, this is not the way life is supposed to work. This isn't the way this should have gone. I would apply it to family life. I would apply it to my physical well-being or that of other people that I love. I would apply it to events in our church over the last few years. Certainly had good days and bad days just like anybody else. Far too many bad Far too often, angry at the way things have gone in one way or another. Angry at some people and angry at God. He was not doing what I wanted, what I imagined, or what I would have done. The way I would have designed it. And I know several of you in this room have watched me wrestle with this and have encouraged me on a number of occasions. And I've even preached about this throughout this whole time preaching it to you all preaching it to myself because many of our texts over the last few years have have addressed this and over these last several weeks in particular god has used his word including these most recent passages regarding the lordship of christ and other readings in my quiet time worship music that i listen to fellowship and counsel from brothers and sisters in the lord including several in my family To show me that at the root of so much of my stress, my anger, my depression, my anxiety has been a lack of functional understanding of and submission to the rightness of the sovereignty of God and his leading in my life. There is a man who passed away recently that I would imagine not many of you have heard of but some of you perhaps some of you I know have a Christian man named Ron Hamilton who had a battle with cancer many many years ago he died recently from dementia but he wrote a song many many years ago during his battle with cancer and one of the lines of that song because he passed away recently and I know of this guy came to my mind throughout these last couple of weeks and hit me like a ton of bricks It goes like this, I could not see through the shadows ahead, so I looked at the cross of my Savior instead. I bowed to the will of the Master that day, and peace came, and tears fled away. I don't think these passages that we have read and studied together are specifically about the sovereignty of God in terms of the ordering of events. But it is very much about the fact that Jesus is Lord and that he is in charge of what is right, of the law, of the Sabbath, of justice. And we who want our lives to be going differently or to have gone differently than they have or are, we who wrestle with anxiety and anger and fear about the way that our lives ought to be ordered, the way that they are going, we need to remember, my friends, that Christ is the Lord and submit to Him. Simply surrendering to the fact that everything He does is good and right, that He is the chosen servant of God who brings justice and perhaps even to repent of our legalistic hearts that mistakenly believe that we understand what is right, what is good, and exactly how everything should go, even better than he does. Friends, I'm with you. I know that the loss you suffered has been painful. I know that it feels like your job is draining your soul. I know that your finances aren't exactly the way you wish they were. I know that your battle with sickness is exhausting. But my friend, good news. Christ is Lord. And he is just. And he is good and wise. And we can trust him. Look to the cross of our suffering servant of God who came to bring and establish justice and did did so through his life, death, and resurrection. Friends, may we all bow in submission to his good and gracious, sovereign will. Perhaps we too, like that man named Ron years ago, will be able to say that our tears will be replaced with peace. Friends, Christ is Lord. The Lord of the law, the Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of justice, the Lord, period. So let's trust him with all of our hearts, every day, for all of our days. Let's pray. God, we love to see our Christ in your word. We have barely scratched the surface these last several times looking through these passages. We could plumb these depths even deeper and rejoice even more and grow even further. Repent, perhaps, of additional things that come to mind as we do. But Lord, in these meager efforts of mine to try to explain and apply your word over these last several weeks in these three passages, Lord, please use our, my weakness, as you always do, to change my heart and all the hearts of your people for good, to trust in you, to rest in you, to believe and live like You are doing what is right, even when it is not the exact way we would do it. Jesus, we praise you for your gentleness. We thank you that you will not break those of us who are bruised reeds and throw us away. That you will not blow out those of us whose wicks feel as if they are barely still smoldering and then replace us with a better candle thank you that you love us and that you have come for us. Help us to trust you and follow you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.